week. It's kind of a part one, part two. But let's read verses 1 to 16. I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from, and his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, and those that are those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And that the words, the word seven, whether it be seven golden lampstands or the seven churches, uh, are is a perfect number which symbolizes the church in all ages. And nevertheless, what John is saying here is that he's really building on what has gone before. In some ways, he's not creating anything that's new. The Old Testament was not just to do with the things that happened way back then. The book of Genesis is a book of universal significance. It talks about the nations being blessed. And so we uh, think about the nations this morning, as often comes to talk about, or as we hear about Ethiopia next week. Uh, these are places that extend beyond our, our own borders to the kingdom of God around the world. And the Old Testament speaks a lot about that. So, John, in his vision, is seeing things that were already spoken of many, many years ago. Reinforcing in our minds that these things have not been left behind. They have not been shelved like dusty books on a shelf, never to have relevance again. But rather quite the opposite. Revelation is pulling these things out and saying, lest you think that God has forgotten what he said back in Genesis, or back in Isaiah, or Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, or Minor Prophets, those things are now being ramped up because the one of whom the Old Testament scriptures spoke of has now come. Jesus himself said that, didn't he? 
beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he showed unto them the things concerning what? Himself. Concerning himself. And therefore, uh, when Jesus came, was born, lived, and died, and rose again, uh, that inaugurated these things in a more profound way. So, again, uh, we want to look at what it is that John is getting across to the church. You'll notice in some of the prophets, for example, Ezekiel and Isaiah, they start their ministry off in seeing a vision of God. Isaiah, most famously, in the one that we read in our call to worship, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So it puts it in historical context. Just as we might look back and say, uh, in the year that Russia invaded Ukraine, this is what happened. It puts it in a historical context. And Isaiah sees the Lord. There's much in the prophecy of Isaiah that is going to be heard. The people, God is going to speak of captivity. He's going to speak of judgment. He's going to speak of all these things. But where does the Lord start in Isaiah? Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And uh, I said to the folks who came Travers this morning, imagine that this church was a temple. Imagine that we had pillars. Well, we do have pillars here this morning. We've got pillars, so imagine, we can imagine more uh, clearly that this is a temple. But in the uh, temple, the train, you remember the long train that Lady Di was married in in 1983. It went on forever. And uh, it, it, the, the train of the Lord's robe here in Isaiah fills the temple. And the train of the robe was a symbol of authority. And the longer it was, the greater the person's authority and power. So if it's filling the temple, then it says that the Lord has absolute authority. That's what it's saying. That's what Isaiah would see. Of course, John, in his gospel, said that Isaiah was talking about who? Jesus. Isaiah wrote about Jesus when he saw his glory, John says. Building a bridge then from Isaiah to the Gospel of John and then on to the book of Revelation. So you see that the Bible is not all over the place and just random things like God, you know, in one age he does this and then throws it out and then he brings something else in. No, these themes are continually coming around in circles again and again and repeating themselves, reinforcing themselves in our minds. And so it is here. Notwithstanding the judgments, notwithstanding the persecution and all that is going to happen in the book of Revelation, we start off with this glorious vision of who Jesus is. But also a picture of intimacy as to where Jesus is. And that's what we will see this morning. First, the context. And it, 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 uh, we spoke about this earlier on in our series. John is in the Isle of Patmos, as he says there in verse 9. Patmos was a kind of like a penal colony. Uh, probably the most famous penal colony that we know of 
is Australia. Australia was a penal colony for the British early on. They just sent all the prisoners off to Australia. Uh, a Van Diemen's Land, that was, that's what it's called. There's a great song by U2 as well, Van Diemen's Land. It's on the Rattle and Hum album. You can listen to that. But it, that was, Australia was the penal colony. And this is what Patmos was. It was a land that eight, or rather, six by ten miles. It was very uh, rocky, made up of volcanic rock. But this is where John finds himself. And he characterizes himself in a very intimate way. He says, I, John, your brother. He doesn't put himself up above. He doesn't say, well, I am an apostle, therefore I am above you. He says, no, I am a brother. This is one of the things the apostles were always wanting to do, never putting themselves above uh, the people that they were speaking to, but saying that they were one with them. I, your brother and partner in tribulation. He understood that he was a participant along with them. And that what he was saying that the church would go, would go through was something that he himself right now was also participating in. So John knows whereof he speaks. He knows where he's coming from. And John is saying that he will go through uh, these tribulations with them. He is in this time of tribulation. He knows what it is to suffer firsthand for the gospel, as many of our uh, uh, believing brothers and sisters around the world are doing right now in prisons in Tehran and Pyongyang and Beijing and many other uh, uh, places all over the world where they're in prison. Because they love Jesus and they want to tell people about Jesus. They're bearing, bearing testimony with their imprisonment and with their lives that the gospel is true. And they're, they're willing to do that. Because they know the glory of this, of what they have found. As John is saying here, I am a partner in tribulation and the kingdom. I'm a partner in the kingdom. That's what gives us then the the uh, stamina to endure and the patient endurance that are in Jesus because we have a kingdom that shall not be left to another. That's what the prophecy of Daniel was showing us. Here is the Babylonian kingdom. Here is the Medo-Persian kingdom. Here is the Greek kingdom. Here is the Roman Empire. And all of these empires will come crashing down at the feet of him whose kingdom lasts forever. Is it any wonder that John was willing to suffer and endure patiently for the kingdom of God? Is it any wonder that many millions of believers around the world are willing to endure patiently for the kingdom of God? And tell their neighbor, tell their families, tell their friends about the truth of the gospel because they know that the kingdom that they belong to is an everlasting kingdom. So he is happy to call himself a partner in tribulation. I am one with you. I am your brother. I am going through the similar things that you are going through. He's not ashamed of those to whom he is writing. Even though, as we said last week, there are many things wrong with the church. There are many things wrong in Ephesus. 
in Smyrna, in Pergamum, in Sardis, in Laodicea, and all of these churches, there's lots of things that are wrong. And yet that doesn't disqualify John from speaking the way he does in such tender uh, uh, terms to them. Again, that idea of tribulation, a partner in tribulation. Some have seen this idea of tribulation in the book of Revelation in various ways. Others, some have seen it as a period of time at the end of world history. Others, like myself, have seen this tribulation period as extending from the time Jesus comes the first time to the time he returns. That the church will go through a time of tribulation. Now, how do we think about that? How do we come to a conclusion like that? Well, we do so by looking at what the Bible says about tribulation in other places. Paul says, for example, that through many tribulations you enter the kingdom of God. Jesus himself says that in this world you will have tribulation. And as I said before, can we say to believers who are tortured and put to death in the most gruesome of ways and treated like the scum of the earth in many parts of the world, can we say to them, no, you're not going through great tribulation. That's reserved for people. No, these are people that are going through tribulation as they enter the they're going through great tribulation. Just this week in the Voice of the Martyr Prayer Notes, 20 Christians executed by Boko Haram in, in Nigeria. Just this week. Did you hear about that on CBC? Did you hear about it on CTV? No, you wouldn't hear about that. But that happens on a regular basis around the world. This is what I believe the idea of tribulation in the Bible is. The church is going through that. You may say, well, I'm not going through that. Well, we are part of the body of Christ worldwide, and our brothers and sisters are going through that, and we are to identify with them as if we were going through that ourselves. And so as believers, we are able, through this preface that John gives here, to endure. I am your brother. I who have seen the Lord. I saw him. I handled him. I touched him. I saw him when he rose from the dead. I heard his, I saw him as he ascended into heaven, and I am your partner. I am locking arms with you, and I am testifying that what I have seen and heard is true. I am your partner. Albeit in the tribulation, you might say, aren't these things contradictory? You're talking about the sovereignty of Jesus and tribulation. If Jesus is sovereign, why does the church suffer? And yet we know that God has used suffering to purge his church. He has used suffering to help believers come to realize whether they 
that, that, that they truly do believe. And as many Christians are going through the mill today around the world, they're able to say, look, I'm willing to sin in this person. I'm willing to suffer the loss of these things because I know it could be true. I know that Jesus is real. And the more I suffer, strangely, the more convicted I am that it is indeed true. Would they have come to that realization without tribulation? Maybe, but probably not. The Lord uses these things. Through much tribulation, you must enter the kingdom of God. The more Paul suffered, the more he was able to say, I know in whom I believe, and I, I, I know that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. That's why the writers of the Bible could hold these two things without shame, without embarrassment, the sovereignty of Jesus and the suffering of the church. We know that Jesus himself was a partaker of that. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And yet he could rebuke the wind and the waves. He could raise the dead. He could cause the blind to see. He could speak to a a contingent of soldiers, and they would just fall back on their on, on, on their backs onto the ground. And yet, seconds later, he could hold out his hands, have his wrists tied with rope, and be led away by the helpless lamb. All of that within seconds. We are not ashamed. We are not embarrassed as we think through these things of speaking of a kingdom and yet faithful endurance. Because we know that there is a process, just as there was a process with Jesus, as he suffered and entered into his glory, so believers also, as the legacy that he has left for them, we also suffer and we enter into that glory. So John introduces himself in this way on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So there's a lot there. Simply the testimony of the gospel. The testimony of what God is doing in the world through Jesus. That's why I'm here. That's why we're here. That's what we're doing here. We're not just here to listen about, listen to people who have done these things. It is our mandate as well to bear witness to the truth of the gospel. He says, I was in, in verse 10, I was in the spirit of the Lord's day. I was in the spirit. What does that mean? Simply that just like the Old Testament prophets, like Isaiah in the passage we read at the beginning, where he saw a vision of the Lord high and lifted up, he was in a spiritual state of mind. He was taken over by the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God was showing him. Remember it says in the book of Acts, your young men shall uh, see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. That's talking about what will happen in the latter days, and this is What's happening now with John? John is seeing this vision as he's 
taken up by the Spirit of God and shown things uh, that are true. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, it tells us. The Lord's Day is simply the, the, the name of the first day of the week where Christians met for worship. Why did they meet on that day? Why do they meet on the traditional Sabbath of the Jewish uh, uh, weekly calendar? It's because Jesus' resurrection was ushering in all that we see here. A new age. It was the beginning of something completely different. A new creation. And to mark that, the church now begins to meet, not on the Sabbath day of the Jewish calendar, but on the first day of the week. And so they celebrated the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. They took up a collection for the saints on the first day of the week. Paul preached on the first day of the week. Jesus, of course, as we know, was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. And it becomes then the Lord's day. The Lord then becomes his day. It's not Kent's day. It's not anybody else's day. It's his. And that carries with it a weight then in terms of how we approach that day, of course, doesn't it? But it's to be sanctified, as our confessions and our catechisms speak of. But that day is to be sanctified. Even if you say, oh, well, I don't believe in the Old Testament Sabbath remaining true to today. But you can still say, because of those very words, the Lord's day, there has to be some measure of, of setting it apart, right? Of making it unlike all the other days of the week. It's the Lord's day. It's his day. So you say, well, I may not agree with all the ins and outs of the Old Testament Sabbath, but surely I have to, simply by the words that John uses here, to say that there is something holy and special about this day compared to all the other days of the week. And it was on this day that God made known these wonderful words to John. What does he make known to him there? I was in the spirit of the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a voice of the trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And there you see the, the list of those churches. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw uh, the seven golden lampstands. Now, the lampstands in the Old Testament were symbolic. Again, Picture yourself in the temple. Here we are again. And Jesus died, the veil was torn, but in the holy place was the lampstand. It was a stand branching off into seven little uh, uh, shoots, and on top there was light burning on the top of each, which showed that God was the light of His people. And as Jesus comes along and He says, in his ministry, I am the light of the world. If any man believes in me, he will not walk in darkness. What a wonderful thing. We have God's light. We have God's truth to guide us through this life in our dealings with the world, but also through the valley of the shadow of death unto eternal life. Into glory. That light is blazing on before us. But it was also something that symbolized the, uh, uh, the Spirit of God. In Zechariah's vision, for example, he sees seven lamps 
And the, the, the lamps were fed by two olive trees. The oil from those olive trees were feeding the light in those lamps. This was a picture of God empowering His church by the Holy Spirit. God was empowering His church to do the work of rebuilding after the Babylonian captivity. You remember? Seventy years, they were punished for their sins, carried off to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. Seventy years they stayed there, and then they came back. I was downstairs before service, and I was looking around, and it says it's been over two and a half years since we've done anything down in this basement. And I thought, what was it like for the children of Israel to come back after 70 years? Everything looked still pretty good downstairs. But imagine if everything was smashed. Everything turned upside down. Cobwebs. Everything was broken. And all the glass and the windows all smashed out. How, how discouraging that would be. That's what the Israelites came back to after captivity. Stones, the temple all destroyed, the walls torn down. They had to, they had to, and their hearts were failing them. How are we going to do this? Moving all this stone that's still charred and the wood and the, the pieces that were burned 70 years ago, it's all lying there still. We've got to move it. And we've got to do it when we have next door Sanballat and Tobiah who are our enemies and they want to kill us. They want us to stop building the temple. And they're writing letters off to the, uh, the Persian king telling them these people are rebels and they've got to stop. You've got to put this work to an end. And so in the midst of all that comes Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi. And Zechariah has this vision of this lampstand. And it's being fed by uh, olive trees. And the oil is coming into this lamp and God is saying, not by might, not by power, but by My Spirit, says the Lord. I am in your midst. I will give you power. I will give you light. And here is Jesus in the midst of the lampstands in the, at the end of uh, uh, chapter 1. Look at what it says. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. In other words, they're a perfect representation of the church in all ages with all their problems and all their strengths. But Jesus is in the midst of them. He is with them. And just like John, He is not ashamed to call them brethren. He is not ashamed to be with them. In spite of their failings, in spite of the fact that they are uh, not measuring up the way they ought to be, yet nevertheless, there He is. Verse 13, and in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. He doesn't just say, Jesus appeared among the lampstands. Jesus is in the churches. No. He goes back to Daniel. He pulls out this glorious image of one who comes in the clouds of heaven before His heavenly Father, and He is given dominion and power and all kingdoms of the earth that serve Him. He's saying that's the one who is in the churches. It is no less than the Messiah that was predicted from ancient times. 
He has come to fulfill through the church His universal purposes. And so this is what Jesus has come to do. He's come to be the church's light. He has come to guide the church. He has come to empower the church. He has come to help them to maintain their holiness and their agenda in the midst of terrible opposition. Just as it was in the rebuilding of the church way back in the restoration. When they came back from Babylon, God is reappearing to them again. He's not just saying, I'm putting some lampstands in your midst. I'm putting, refilling your oil. But He's saying, no, the very One who holds all power is with you. He is your companion. He has gone through suffering. He has gone through death and He has taken death by the throat and choked it and brought it to an end. He has won victory over sin and death. He has said to death, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your power? It is He who is in the midst of the churches right now. And it's He who is in disabled church this morning. It is He who is with us here today. This is not just a recounting of something that happened long ago or to a people far away. This is a commentary on what is happening today. How do we, as an imperfect church, serve God in our day and generation? How do we? What resources do we have? How do we do that as sinners? As, as, as fallen human beings? How do we serve a holy God? How do we make an impact in a world where a young man walks into a school and guns down all these children? How do we make an impact in a world where a, a, a tyrant can march into a country and just wantonly destroy and bomb and kill and do all these things. How do we make a difference? Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. He comes and He is the light in those churches. He is the He brings the power of the Spirit to those churches. He helps people in those churches to to give and to forgive and to expand and to witness and to be patient and to use their suffering as a testimony to the goodness of God in their day and generation. He helps people with sicknesses and brokenness in their lives to be able to, nevertheless, in the midst of that, to say, Jesus is Lord. Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. And that's why the the churches are described here, and as Jesus is described, moving among the lampstands. He is the light, and He is the power of His church. And He is bringing all of that to fulfillment here. Nancy Guthrie in her new book on Revelation, which is an excellent book, great introduction to the book of Revelation, he says, 
She says that Jesus is not ashamed to be found in the midst of His imperfect church. It is His preferred place to be. He chooses to be in and among His imperfect people who follow and serve Him in an imperfect way. Isn't that good news? In the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man. In Disable and Cape Traverse, I saw one like the Son of Man moving among the lampstands, moving in the lives of people, forgiving them, healing them, restoring them, inspiring them to look beyond their borders, to look internationally to see how they can make a change in the world for good. For the kingdom. He was moving among them. And all that Jesus is doing here, and all that we'll see about him, and we've got to really move on. I didn't realize our time had gone on too much. Uh, Jesus is doing for his church. And all these descriptions that were given here are given uh, because of who Jesus is. Now, I think what I'm going to do is put a period there because our time is gone and I'm going to take the next section in a big gulp. And, uh, but what we are going to go on to see here is Jesus described in ways that are a metaphor. As we see his clothing and as we see his feet and his eyes and his hair, we are not to imagine Jesus in that way. In, in, in the sense that Jesus physically now has bronze feet walking around in heaven or long flowing white hair or fire coming out of his eyes. John is painting a picture of what he's seeing to, just, to convey to us, as we'll see hopefully next week, Lord, no, two weeks' time, Lord willing, Tim will have the service next week, uh, we'll see that in each one of these characteristics, the church is to be A, warned, and secondly, comforted. Well, let's pray.